course I know what happened. I live in Whitechapel, don't I? We all sort of know one another, women like us. Women who have had a rough go of it. Women you pass by sleeping in the park. Women who have put their babies in the grave and been left by their cheating husbands with nothing but their name. Women who sometimes share a bed with men they don't know to keep out of the cold or buy another drink they know damn well they'll be sick without. These women, myself included, they've been abandoned by the folks that claimed to love them a long time ago. We disappear into the ashes because you don't want to look at us. If it's not the drink, the men, the grief, the hunger or the sickness, leather apron will get you. He comes to them at night. He can't be a frightening sort because they ain't running. All the blood's in one spot. Anyone who's ever seen a bar fight knows it gets everywhere if they're on the move. If I was a betting girl, I'd say he offered them something they wanted. Maybe money or drink. They were in alleys and yards, places where no one would see them. But we're not safe anywhere. Mary Jane was in her own bed. He tore her apart. You know the rent man found her the next morning. He didn't want to know if she was all right. He wasn't worried that no one had heard from her. He wanted money. And so he broke in through the window to get it. But instead, he found her lying supine in her bed. Curled pigtail, one stocking, white nightdress, and pulp. The papers say she was a body emptied of its viscera. But they got it wrong. She was a woman emptied of her life. She lost her husband when she was just 16. She sang when she was drunk. <laughs> he left her insides on the bedside table, leather apron did. So yes, we are all afraid. We weren't always like this, you know. We were little girls in pretty dresses hanging onto our mother's skirts. Mischievous little people who snuck extra tea cakes and brought home stray cats. We were young ladies full of hope running through the gardens with our friends. People loved us, and somewhere, their people miss them now. And regardless of what those papers say, nobody asks for that. They were good. It was their circumstances that were bad. We all used to have hope, but now we only hope that Leather Apron skips over us another night, leaving someone else's viscera on the night table, next to their hat pins and spent matches but nobody wants to talk about that. They only want to know about him. Any one of us could be next. Could be me. Could be you. Will they miss you when you're gone? Or will you just be another headline? The bloodier, the better. Leather Apron doesn't care. He comes no matter what. So watch your back. Especially when it's dark. I'm Holly. I'm Leslie. And we would be dead.
stripper time. <laughs> this is my real voice. Or was the other one my real voice? Oh, we'll never know. <laughs> is that your real voice? <laughs> it might be. Guys, you have to let me know if you like the accent or if it was like I liked not it. as good. Did I you think, like it? I think that's cool. how you should always talk now. It was mm. a little calming. Now I'm always British. Yeah. The whole episode. You sounded like a children's cartoon British voice. Oh, I like that. Because yeah. I listen to a lot of children's cartoons. Yeah. <laughs> You're lucky I don't sound Australian because of Bluey. Yeah. Bluey. <laughs> That's half my life now. <laughs> hey, Leslie. Hey, Holly. Hey, fiends. Oh, man. We have got another big one this week. 2021 is wall-to-wall hits. Yeah, for sure. I'm going to say. You asked and we delivered. We're turning out content as fast as we can, and that can leave a girl a little a run down, mm-hmm. you know? Mm-hmm. A little dull, parched, covered in hives, you know? Yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like me right at this very moment. Not kidding. <laughs> we could really use a nice long dip in the crystal clear waters of your validation. Mm, that's my favorite place to be. Doesn't it sound nice right now? Yes. Because it's not all baby's blood and darkness. Sometimes we need a little breath of fresh air. Yeah. And yeah. you can give us that. Mm. That's right. If you want to breathe a little life back into me and Leslie, you can head on over to Apple Podcasts and leave us a five-star rating and or a friendly review. It only takes a second, and it really is the main thing that moves podcasts forward. And I feel like we've been stuck at 69 ratings for a couple of weeks because we're having a good 13-year-old boy laugh at that number. (laughs) For sure. And nobody wants to ruin it. I know. But you can, you can. Yeah, that's what I'm saying. We've seen it. It's very funny. Yeah. But what you should do now is get us to 666 soon. Ooh. Right, because then we'll also, like, we'll like that too. Yeah, That'll absolutely. be fun. Mm-hmm. And if you want to be a bigger part of what makes the We Would Be Dead engine, We Would Be Dungeon? Ooh, Maybe. I like that. Yeah. You want to be part of that and help more horrible jokes like that run, you can support We Would Be Dead over on Patreon, where for just a few dollars a month, you can gain access to our extra monthly mini-sode, our conversation with mental health professional Andrew Jarima about Anissa Wire um, and where her future is going to go. is probably going to go up any day now. Uh, and we'll keep you posted on that. Don't worry about it. And you'll also get our extra monthly podcast, which is called 30-Minute Horror Movies. Uh, discounts at our merch store, and on-air toast dedicated just to you, and more. Lastly, if all of that seems a little overwhelming, you can simply share any of our content to your social media feed and encourage your friends to become fiends so that we can all hang out together. Word of mouth helps, I swear. Tell everybody you know. (laughs) Everyone. Or else. You don't want to find out what else there is. It's pretty scary. so scary. Maybe we whisper all the time now. Oh, that might be good. I think John would hate it. Would this get us more ratings? I don't know. Maybe. Is this an ASMR thing? Maybe. It's <laughs> dirty. <laughs> yeah, right. I think that's all I have for now. And we had like a whole whisper thing. Leslie, do you have anything to add? Uh, the whisper thing was um, that all was your, I had this week. Was your addition this week? Yeah. Good. Okay. All right, then. Yeah. On with the show. Great. A lot of you have asked that we cover the Ripper murders, and let me be honest with you, I avoided them for a while (laughs) because I was a little intimidated by the breadth of information out there, and rightly so, because we thought this was going to be two parts, but surprise, it's three! (laughs) 
I remember you thinking, I might be able to get this into a little longer one episode. Never. I, that then, was stupid of me. Yeah. I mean, very quickly, you were like, no, two. Mm-hmm. And then tonight. I did throw around three <laughs> before, though. When we you, talked yeah, about we it, did. I said this yeah. might be our first three-parter because there's just there's a lot of things to talk about. Yeah. But I was like, hi, I can do it in two. I can't do it in two, yeah. you guys. I just can't. And also, we met our week three guest. Because we have a guest on the final episode of our coverage on The Ripper this week. So exciting. And then I knew that we had a really great way to make this case fresh and interesting. Yeah. Our guest for the final leg of our Ripper journey will be our friendly neighborhood corpse reviewer. And he's a real live forensic scientist. Gonna like make us all legit. (laughs) (laughs) He also prefers to remain anonymous out of respect to the families of those he has inspected after they shuffled off their mortal coil. And we think that's pretty damn great. Yep. Way to be a kind and respectful human. Um, and you guys should go over and check out the Instag- Instagram account, The Corpse Review, where he is an active contributor. It's a really fun account. The good sciencey folks over there review movie corpses for their accuracy. Okay. <laughs> yeah. It's really funny and educational and write up all of your collective alleys. So give them a follow. There will be a link in the show notes. I'll put it in all three weeks so that you guys can have an opportunity to check that out. This week, we will be telling you the story. Actually, these first two weeks, we'll be telling you the story of the Ripper murders. And I'm using this phraseology because the moniker Jack the Ripper does not exist in any of the original case files or newspaper articles at all. Oh, wow. Yeah. I was kind of shocked to find that out. I thought they had started using it at one point, but no. The title comes from the From Hell letters that come into play later on. And this is a letter which many Ripper scholars believe to be a well-placed fake, actually, possibly even faked by the police department. Uh, And in all the reports of the time, this particular killer is referred to either as the Whitechapel murderer or Leather Apron. Oh, wow. Which is way more menacing. For sure. That's a horror movie. It's like Leatherface, Leather Apron. I know. And if it wasn't so damn anti-Semitic, which we'll get to later, I would prefer it over the much dandier Jack the Ripper. (laughs) There are also quite a few people who believe these murders to be the work of more than one person. Mm -hmm. So trying to blanket it all into one guy in a top hat and cape could just be plain wrong. We don't know. Mm. And that's the frustrating part. So I have compromised and will refer to this series of crimes as the Ripper murders for the duration of our coverage. So get on board. And no, I'm not killing the Jack the Ripper persona. Don't worry about it. He is an icon. He is fierce. We can keep him. But just remember, there's a difference between legend and reality. Okay, so don't cancel him. No, we're not going to cancel Jack the Ripper. (laughs) Which sounds terrible. They're going to take that sound bit. God damn it. (laughs) That's how we'll blow up. Because (laughs) Because we're like horrible people. Yeah. When I was really just talking about that one little cartoon style character they made. Yeah. You you think of Jack the Ripper as a fictional amalgamation of different stories, basically. (laughs) So in the first two weeks, what we're going to do is explain all of the events, give you the background stories on all the women whose lives were tragically cut short, and then head into the investigation and evidence. Then we'll wrap it up in the third week with theories and suspects and our fantastic interview. We're going to find out what an actual forensic scientist thinks happened in Whitechapel in 1888 based on forensic evidence, autopsy reports, and the crime scene photos, which, okay, you guys can find the crime scene photos online everywhere. I will post some things, but they're very, very graphic, and Instagram will actually probably flag me if I put some of them up. 
And some of them are naked. And I had to put little heart pasties on the Black Dahlia's nips. So we'll see what I can do. So if I don't give you all of the dirtiest, goriest images you're looking for, you can find them. If you have a hard time, you can message me and I can tell you where to find them. It's fine. But I have faith in you. Just to let you know, in case you see our photo suite and you're like, I want more horrible. <laughs> we'll send you to the dark web. Oh, no. I don't know how to get there. <laughs> I got to stay out of there. That's scary. Stay out. Stay out. Oh, man. You could buy, like, drugs and kids. It's awful. Terrible. Yeah. So I just it, wanted to look at crime scene photos. <laughs> I mean, you can find them on the real web. Yeah, That's easy. For sure. And anyway, forensic experts are pretty much better than any of us can do from our couches armed with only the internet. So I am beside myself about this, and I cannot wait to learn so many things. Me too. If you guys have come to our lives, uh, the Corpse Reviewer has been at a couple of them, and he's contributed some really awesome, science smart, cool things. We all had fun talking about it. So it's going to be really cool. I'm super excited. So, now that you know what you're in for, let's head back in time to 1888 Whitechapel, England. Leslie, why don't you set the stage for us? Sure. Thank you. So, by the late 19th century, London was poppin'. <laughs> London's hottest club. <laughs> it was the largest capital city on the planet and the center of the British Empire. Queen Victoria had already been kicking ass and taking names for over 50 years on the throne, and the Victorian style was in full swing around London. Hey, girl, hey. Anyone who was anyone was going out in London's West End. <laughs> <laughs> we'll just put this in a blender with our Michael Alec episode. Yeah. Especially in 1888. New popular music was exploding on the scene, which led to a number of concert halls opening up. And from there, restaurants and hotels were in more demand and began popping up on every corner. I wish we had the popular music because it would probably be like so weird and old timey. I know. <laughs> if we can find it, we'll post some. <laughs> this is what was playing in the club. <laughs> That idea makes me happy. <laughs> Keep going. The Victorians were having the time of their lives, while well, the wealthier ones were anyways. Mm -hmm. On London's east side, its residents were living in a very different story. By the late 1800s, around 900,000 people lived in London's east side, and about a quarter of a million were living in Whitechapel, which was one of the many towns within the East End. And within Whitechapel, there were areas that were more family-friendly, but other sections that were considered London's no-go zone. So imagine Whitechapel as being just like a town within a town, and mm -hmm. then there's like different sections of that town as well, like right. different enclaves and stuff. So there was just like one or two areas that were just very seedy. And unfortunately, the seedy side of Whitechapel would give the whole area a bad rep. It was pretty bad, though. It, I mean, it was very bad, but there were, like, it was just kind of a couple streets versus, like, yeah. the entire town. Oh, my God. All the bad stuff happened. And I guess I did know that because I, like, named all these streets. Yeah. But just, I, like, seeing it as such a narrow little spot mm -hmm. where all this horrible stuff happened is, like, pretty crazy. Yeah. Mm -hmm. The rise in residence was due to the gentrification of London's west side with all the new buildings popping up. Homes were torn down and rent was higher. The poor folks were forced to relocate and the East End had prices they could afford sometimes. They were basically three classes of people on the East End. You had your poor, which were builders, laborers, shopkeepers, dock workers, and tailors. 
the very poor, which were women and children, usually being seamstresses, weavers, or clothes washers, and then the homeless, living in a permanent state of deprivation. (laughs) There was an influx of Jewish, Russian, and Irish immigrants to the area as well. The Irish had been coming over since the early 1800s due to the potato famine, while the Jewish population were more recently fleeing persecution in Poland and Russia. So between the foreign immigrants and the Brits, uh, and the Brits who were forced into the East End, there was now more people than jobs. The town was overcrowded, crime rates were high, and the working and living conditions were terrible. Ugh. Apartments and homes were not up to code. There were... <laughs> That's like a really nice way yeah. of putting it. They just need a little work. But yeah, they're just, you know... Fine. There were sometimes two to three families living in the same small space because they couldn't afford their own places. Many of these homes were damp and had little ventilation and were infected with insects or lacked proper sewage facilities. And sanitation and sewage was basically non-existent on the east side. There was no place to throw your waste other than right onto the street, and there were no there was no money in the area to clean up the streets, so it literally smelled like shit. Because because there was actual shit. There was just shit all over. So there was people shit, and then they all some of these people also had like sheep and cattle that they would in just a like city. Yeah. What a weird place to have sheep and cattle. Well, because some of them were like off like suburbs, and I and guess, I mean they yeah. had like meat farms and stuff, so they were yeah. just like carrying their like animals through the town they were just pooping everywhere she didn't have those nice little like little bags poop poop catchers <laughs> you a little poop catcher on a horse yeah that's horses too everything was pulled around by a horse yeah and they just like shit right on the road if you look at pic- which we'll post pictures of white temple um if you look at them there's like a channel down the middle of the street like a little cracky channel type thing where i'm imagining it all just kind of filtered mm-hmm. into and then was there right Ugh. But yeah. I, it, it's not large. It's, it couldn't hold solid waste. It's like a sidewalk crack almost. Yeah, absolutely. Mm-mm. It was rough. It was rough. And also, like, so with the apartments, you know, there were some families were like two to three in a room. Yeah. And that was pretty good because in some of the other areas, there were sometimes four, five, six, seven families all living in one space. And a lot of these were called, um, or, oh, what were they called? Not like the Dobb. Dob houses or tenements? They were yeah, like where you can get like single, like a single night or something. Oh, hold on, I have them in here. They're dos dos home dos houses. Um, yeah, they call them like lo- something lodger. I have it in. I have it written in them. We'll get to it, and then I'll be like, there it is. Okay. Well, anyway, so they would. Uh, so th- there would be even more people, and then sometimes they would uh, rent little spaces in the room for the night. And sometimes mm-hmm. they would just rent like a, they would have a rope going across that you can lean on. And Ew. that would be really cheap. And so it was just more comfortable than sleeping on the street. They just have like a rope to lean on and then be out of like, I guess you're not especially outside. if it was raining or anything like that. It was cold, you know? Yeah, they're called like lodging houses or yeah. something. And mm-hmm. they, like you literally, and all the women we're going to talk about stayed in like the same three mm-hmm. of them. You rented your bed for the night. Yes. Mm-hmm. And, it, and it was every night. You didn't pay like a monthly or a right. weekly rent. It was Which nightly. is wild because these people lived there. Like this was their home, yeah. but they had to rent a place every night because that's how little money they had. Mm-hmm. And, and I guess there were some that like would give you credit or have or let you pay in longer amounts of time mm-hmm. because I know Mary Jane Kelly, who we're not even going to talk about today, we'll talk about her next week, um, she was like six 
she was behind. So that's why, I mean, I mentioned her in the opening. That's why they broke in her window because she was behind on her rent considerably. And they were like trying to storm the castle and shake her down to get money. But she was dead. Well, crazy. So yeah. yeah, so it wasn't, it was not fun. With little money, poor living conditions, poor city sanitation, and malnutrition, it made getting sick and infections very common, causing death rates to rise, especially with children under five. Oh, God. Was the time when you, like, didn't name a child until they were two or something Mm -hmm. because you didn't know if they were going to live? Yeah. It was super rare. Work was hard enough for men to find, but it was nearly impossible for women to find, leaving them almost no choice but to turn to prostitution to make ends meet. It's been reported that just in Whitechapel alone, there were 1,200 working prostitutes, but many historians believe that there were many more. I believe that. Mm -hmm. That's like what everybody there did. Exactly. This was their only means of income and survival. They would make very little money, sometimes just enough for a room stay or a small meal, but most would seek comfort in alcohol. Drink was cheap and pubs were plentiful, leading many who live on on the East End to become alcoholics. These women were often subjected to sexual assault, rape, and murder, as we'll find out. Mm -hmm. Brawls were commonplace, and as one Whitechapel resident put it, cries of murder were nothing unusual on the street. I thought you said bras, and I was like, okay, we're at a time where we're going to wear a bra. No, bras. (laughs) Brawls. 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 (laughs) I thought we were going in a very different direction. I thought we were talking about undergarments. (laughs) Fights were a commonplace. <laughs> got it. Got it, got it, got it. So were bras. Yeah. Whatever. You know. <laughs> the police force, who were a little overwhelmed with the high level of petty crimes, gang activity, and alcohol-related violence, just didn't care much. Mm-hmm. The police would try to brush it under the rug, and this would be like the murders of the women or any like sexual so or rape assaults. Yeah. They would chalk it up to someone just being too drunk, or instead of murder, they died of maybe some sort of disease. You get the idea. You never know. You don't know. These women were also not the pretty, charming showgirl types that we see portrayed in the movies. These women would be, like, those kind of women would be more, like, in London. These Whitechapel women, unfortunately, were malnourished, bloated, and diseased, missing teeth, wore the same clothes every day, and looked 40 at the age of 20. In fact, people called them unfortunates. Yeah. Which is so sad. And it's no wonder people didn't seem to care what happened to them, and that's just the sad truth. But their lives were the product of their environment, so it's just sad that no one was looking out for them. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. but So that's my setup. So when I imagine this time, I imagine it as Sweeney Todd. <laughs> yeah, but that's accurate. <laughs> yeah. That's like Sweeney Todd describes this situation. I was in Sweeney Todd, so... Yeah. yeah. It's all in my head. <laughs> <laughs> I will not sing any of Mrs. Lovett's songs this week. Don't worry. Man, uh, but you're 100%. I will. <laughs> but you're 100% right. That yeah. is exactly what it was. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I also read they called the segments of Whitechapel that were bad rookeries. Oh, uh-huh. Yeah. Did you read that? Um, I don't. I don't have the, I didn't know if you were going to go into it or not. I don't have the exact I didn't, I just, when I was doing my research, they would mention it. And, but a lot of my research was coming from other British sites. So I just Mm -hmm. thought it was like a term that they, like, I just thought it was like a slang word that they use. But to me, it just reminded me of like ghettos. 
Yeah, a rookery is a colloquial English term given in the 18th and 19th centuries to a city slum occupied by poor people and frequently also by criminals and prostitutes. So there you go. But they just referred to the, like, little tiny piece where it was a nightmare in Whitechapel. It's like these were rookeries. That's what they called them. Mm -hmm. So I just kept coming upon that word and being like, (laughs) So anyway, there you go. You guys can add that to your uh, vocabulary. Don't call a town that you like that. It's mean. Yes. <laughs> so when we think of Whitechapel in 1888, obviously we have a very clear picture of Jack the Ripper and an equally clear picture of the kind of women he killed. Much like in the case of Ted Bundy, though, the media has gotten the through line of this story very, very wrong. It's not about a sexy, mysterious, surgically accurate, bloodlusting society man. It's about a bunch of women society chose to ignore that were savagely murdered and then sensationalized as something that they weren't. Mm. So I posted a picture today on our Instagram, and that's just a little taste of it that was like implying that these prostitutes got what they deserved, implying that they were these horrible, filthy women that just, that's what they did with their life, so what do you want? Mm -hmm. And they dehumanize them a lot. They make them these like, disgusting characterizations of women when I and I find that really troubling especially when I went I read all the facts just as like very dry facts and then I went in and read other stuff and I thought why is this worded like this Mm. why are you being so like mean to this woman why are you coloring her in such a disgusting way when in some cases as you mentioned and as we'll get to it it's it's really desperation right It's not their choice. They didn't make some horrible choice. They were forced into this, like, very scary lifestyle. So instead of uh, telling—and these people do this instead of telling their tragic stories. So the media decides to take a turn, like I said, and make them foul-mouthed, baseless whores. Because honestly, like, that's what we want. The public loves a slut that they can blame for their own demise. Man, I wonder if Nick Pisa was writing for— them in 1888. I mean, he is just (laughs) another evolution of those same kind of people. I mean, look what happened to Britney Spears. It's the same thing. People love to turn her into a slut they hate. (laughs) I know. I'm not saying that she is, but like, that's what happened to her. I know. And I can't make the leap saying she's exactly the same as these women. She's clearly not, but it is a very similar phenomenon. Yeah, for sure. So it's a tale as old as time, but I flatly refuse to be a part of that narrative. While yes, Some, if not all, of these women were sex workers at one point in time. That was not the beginning or middle of their stories. And also, there's nothing wrong with being a sex worker. So let's throw that dusty old notion out the window. Cool. To start with, the Whitechapel murders are actually a series of 11 unsolved murders that occurred in the impoverished Whitechapel area of East London between April 3rd, 1888 and February 13th, 1891. As Leslie mentioned, Whitechapel was the worst of all neighborhoods at the time, And the streets on which the murders occurred were called, quote, the worst streets in London. So for those crimes to make a splash where they occurred at this point in time, you know that they were something pretty crazy. Of the 11 murdered, the, quote, canonical five, Marianne Nichols, Annie Chapman, Elizabeth Stride, Catherine Eddowes, and Mary Jane Kelly, are the victims that most scholars attribute to the Ripper, with the remaining six being coincidental tragedies in a very rough area. But there are those who would argue that old gentleman Jack is responsible for all of them. Murders attributed to the Ripper were those with particular violence and mutilation that occurred in the genital and facial areas. Mm. It's gross. I watched, I looked at so many gross pictures this week. 
It all started with a woman named Emma Elizabeth Smith. Emma was a 45-year-old widow who had fallen on hard times since the death of her husband some years before. She was what the slightly better class and what Leslie explained was called an unfortunate. It also means it's a term for a prostitute who conducted her business on the street. Mm -hmm. So these women, like if you rented them for a service, it was in an alley. Right. You weren't going to like a back room or a bed. You were going to go do something filthy in an alley. Emma rented a room at a lodging house at 18 George Street in Spatial Fields, which is in the heart of the gang-run, down-and-out section of Whitechapel. In the early morning light of Tuesday, April 3rd, 1888, Emma staggered into her lodging house, clearly injured with a large gash on her face and a torn ear. She was also bleeding profusely, though, from below the waist. She told the deputy keeper of the house, which is like the woman or man in some cases who runs these lodging houses, they call them the deputy keeper because I guess they need like a real scary name. Right. But And I'm sure that they're just like, they just, this is a job. They don't own the house. They're just there to enforce things. This woman was a, um, a woman named Mary Russell, and she told Mary that she had been attacked on the street by two or three men. She wasn't quite sure. And Mary looked at her and knew that she needed medical attention, though at first Emma was very hesitant to go to a hospital because she was a prostitute. Mm-hmm. So she was afraid the police would not treat her fairly. I wonder why. Mary called upon another woman, a lodger named Annie Lee, to help her walk Mary to the hospital. That's right, I said walk. And you'll see shortly why this is insane. The trio of women arrive at the London hospital, and Emma was treated by the house surgeon, a man named George Haslip, who would later testify that she was not intoxicated and was quite alert at this time. Dr. Haslip first noticed her facial injuries, but he was most horrified when he discovered the injuries hidden underneath her skirts. It appeared that someone had rammed a blunt instrument into her vagina with such great force that it ruptured her peritoneum, which is a silk-like membrane that lines your inner abdominal wall and covers the organs within your abdomen. And therefore, they had also ruptured other internal organs as well. Though I don't suspect the doctor went in to find out which organs because that sort of surgery had an extremely high fatality rate in those pre-lister times. Jesus. Mm -hmm. So Dr. Haslip asked what had happened to her, and Emma replied that she was attacked again by two or three men, one of which was a teenager. Ooh. Which is so gross. And she made sure to tell them immediately that it was not through an act of solicitation. So these were not men who were paying to sleep with her. Though she wouldn't have deserved it if it was. Emma said that the men had approached her near a cocoa factory at the junction of Osborne Street and Brick Lane. Now, you're going to hear Osborne Street in every single one of these stories. This is the freaking room where it happened. She was accosted by these men who then robbed her of all her money and assaulted her. Emma said she could tell she could not tell what sort of object they were using to assault her, though she thought that it could have been a knife. She told Dr. Haslip, who asked if she had anyone she could call to help her, that she was from the area but had not had any contact with her friends or family in the past 10 years. Ooh, that's sad. Overnight, Emma fell into a coma, and by 9 a.m. the next morning, she was dead. It was determined that she had succumbed to peritonitis, which is a dangerous infection that is often caused by leakage from a hole in the intestines. So these wounds that started in her went Mm -hmm. all the way in her. Right. 
The police, however, were not informed of the incident until April 6th, which is a few days later. Oh, my God. Uh Uh-huh. Even though a medical examiner had seen her body, and one would think that the surgeon would have immediately reported such a heinous act. No. The coroner's inquest was conducted by a man named Wynne Edwin Baxter. This guy does, um, he's the coroner in Whitechapel, so he does all of the coroner's inquests. And as I explained in the um, uh, Lizzie Borden episode, coroners were like a legal position back then. And Mm -hmm. they're the ones that questioned people about any kind of like murder that had happened. So they would hold an inquest and they would ask about her character. They would ask what the police found. And then they would determine what the crime was before they had a trial for any people. I see. So he was the best boy. You're the best boy. You're just a good boy. (laughs) And his picture, I will post it, is so extreme. He was like, he was a a pretty fabulously dressed in furs, wild looking gentleman. Oh my. Yeah. Well, that's how all the best boys dress. Win Edwin Baxter. (laughs) What a glorious name. Oh my. I know. Furs for days. Yes. He did have furs for days. And he has these, like, wild look in his eyes. I saw this picture of him, and I was like, what do you do in your free time? <laughs> I'll make sure to post it for you guys. <laughs> so he, as I said, carries out all of the subsequent Ripper inquests. And he determined that Emma's death was a murder carried out by, quote, persons unknown. So that's, that's what the coroner is looking for, this kind of determination. She was murdered. We don't know who did it. Now you have to have a trial to find out who did it, if you can find somebody. Chief Inspector John West placed the investigation, because they don't, again, they don't start the investigation until the coroner's inquest, which makes me feel like a waste of time, but, you know. He placed this in the hands of Inspector Edmund Reed of the H Division. I don't fully know what that means, but if they're in alphabetical order, the H Division is not at the top of the list. Right. I'm sure it means something else, but that's all I could think of. Now, uh, Inspector Reed noted in his report that Emma's clothing was, quote, in such a dirty, ragged condition that it was impossible to tell if any part of it had been freshly torn, which has nothing to do with anything. Right. At all. It's just a really rude comment about her appearance and her clothing. Ripping her dress was not, it's not in there anywhere. I don't know why he made that comment. But I think it's kind of telling. The investigation into Emma's death was fruitless, and her murderers were never caught. Police at the time attributed it to a local street gang, many of which at the time were, quote, in charge of local prostitutes, kind of like pimps. And so they would often brutalize them if they failed to pay these gangs for their so-called protection. Later on, due to the severity and nature of her injuries, Emma would be linked into the Ripper killings by some people. And I can see why. But I can also see the gang theory really would add up because of the concentrated injuries that she had. That would seem like the kind of horrible punishment that would come from that. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, you guys can form your own opinions. Next, on Tuesday, August 7th, 1888, the bloody body of Martha Tabram was found at the bottom of a flight of outdoor stairs at the George Yard buildings, which were residences. They're not lodging houses. They're more like an apartment complex or tenement. She was found by a local dock worker, and as it turns out, Martha had been passed over by a great many other uh, people who thought her to be a vagrant that chose that place to just go to sleep, which I want to roll my eyes at, but people slept there a lot. Right, (laughs) right. 
So, I mean, I don't know, but, 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 Martha had been stabbed 39 times with two instruments believed to be something like a bayonet and a dagger. So she would have been a mess. Wait, there must have been blood. Yeah, so why are you walking by this? You're like, they're asleep. They're kind of gross. That's fine. Well, there's probably just shit all over the road. Probably. I mean, she was in like, um, if you... Okay, she was in. If you're at, a, if you've ever been to like an outdoor apartment complex where like the doors are outside mm-hmm. and there's stairs that go from one level to the next, imagine those stairs going down and there's like a little like alleyway behind them. She was at the bottom of those stairs, oh. so she was like out of view. You're right, but you would have seen her if you were walking past her. People were going home to that place and they like walked over her. That's what I was gonna say. That she was just like in the way. Yep. They probably kicked her. They could have. Absolutely. Oh, my gosh. And also, I didn't mention this. Um, I think I accidentally deleted it out mm-hmm. of it. But uh, one of the – another characteristic of Whitechapel at this time, there was only usually, if they even had it, one gas light on, like, per street. So, like, in London, everything was pretty lit up. Yeah. Um, Even in the alleyways, they would have, like, a few more lights. But even just on a main road, Mm -hmm. there might be, like, one gas lamp going. And even in a courtyard, maybe one light. And so, like, alleyways, like, there might not have been any. And there were just tons of these, like, little maze side roads and stuff that were just dark and that's what everyone says they said it was so dark i just didn't know so that does check out Mm -hmm. then if it was it was very dark there and i mean that's also how you know 1500 prostitutes can conduct business outside (laughs) because (laughs) there are no lights i just i always um i keep imagining the alleyways like in cape may like with the mug Oh, God. <laughs> that alleyway is, yeah. like, so dark, like, where everyone would go for their smoke breaks. Yep. Mm-hmm. But shit could happen back then. It sure could. It absolutely <laughs> could. Cape May was built around the same time anyway. Mm-hmm. Well, the Cape May that we have now. Cape May is ancient. True. Maybe one day we'll tell you about it. I took too many ghost <laughs> tours to be excited by it. <laughs> same. <laughs> I didn't take them. I led them. Yeah. <laughs> tour guide for a long time. So Martha, back to Martha, was 39 years old at the time of her death. Martha was born Martha White in Southwark, London on May 10th, 1849. She was the youngest of five children born to Charles Samuel White, a warehouseman, and his wife, Elizabeth Dowsett. Martha married Henry Samuel Tabram, a foreman packer at a furniture warehouse on December 25th, 1869. Oh, Christmas wedding. She and Henry had two sons, Frederick John Tabram, who I'm saying that last name different every time because I'm unsure of it. And so is everybody else. Tabram, Tabram, I'm going to say both. T-A-B-R-A-M. Frederick Drawn was born February in 1871, and Charles Henry was born in December of 1872. But their marriage fell in on hard times, in part due to Martha's drinking. And so Samuel left her in 1875. After that, Martha lived with a few other men, but their relationships were all rocky and quarrelsome. She tried to support herself as best as she could, but as in the case with many of the women at that time and place, her desperate situation and alcoholism drove her to prostitution. On the night before her murder, Margaret was in a pub drinking rum and ale with a woman named Mary Ann Connolly, who was known as Pearly Paul. Yes. Good name, right? I love that. She sounds like a fun gal. Yeah. And she was also an occasional sex worker when the need arose. So the two women were drinking together when a pair of soldiers approached them looking for their services. 
The women then drank with the soldiers for a little while before leaving the pub and each going off to a less traveled outdoor location to do their business. You know, the business, if you will. Hmm. Can you explain that more? I mean, the the sex acts (laughs) in an alley. Hmm. Martha chose the stairwell where she was later found dead, and Pearly Paul was in an alleyway across the street. In the early hours of the following morning, a resident of the one of the buildings, um, someone named Mrs. Hewitt, was awoken by cries of murder. But sadly, as you said, this was all too common in the area, so Mr. Mrs. Hewitt ignored it and went back to bed because they heard murder all the time. Yes, they did. So they just went back to bed. Oh, not again. Not more murder. Martha remained at the bottom of the stairs dead for what the coroners estimate to be around three hours before she was discovered. So it doesn't seem like that long until you realize that people did walk by her. (laughs) Right. Investigations and coroners' inquests determined that Martha was murdered by persons unknown, and though her injuries do not match the pattern of the Ripper's supposed victims, she was killed around the same time in a particularly violent fashion by a knife and was part of the vulnerable population that the Ripper drew from. So she's lumped in with them a lot of the time. Okay. So now we'll go on to the canonical five. I think we actually have two of them this week, and next week we'll have three. So. Mm-hmm. I know. So many. These women were all thought to certainly be killed by the same person with the same motive. So these are, if you watch Ripper movies or read Ripper books, you're only going to hear about these five women. Like if you take the Ripper tour, I hear they predominantly talk about these women too. Mm-hmm. This is the meat of the situation. Okay. Um, yeah, I've only, the only Ripper stuff that I actually really know is probably from hell. Which is not drag me to hell. Not drag me to hell. Mm-mm. I always get <laughs> get the titles mixed up, but I know who plays in them. <laughs> I didn't know you got it mixed up the first time, and I was so confused. <laughs> Remember Justin Long? And I was like, where was he in From Hell? Did I miss that? I mean. Talking about a whole other movie. I mean, it could possible. Was he like a child? It's possible. <laughs> Well, he was younger, sure. He wouldn't have been a child because no. I was in college when it came out. And yeah. He's a little older than I am. So, <laughs> anyway, all of these women's injuries were all similar, and they got progressively more violent and gruesome as mm. we go on. The first was Marianne Nichols. On August 31st at 3.40, and we're still in 1888. We we're not going to leave 1888 for quite a long time. At 3.40 a.m., a carman? which is, I was like, a a man, a car man? This is a a man who drives a horse-drawn vehicle that's used for transporting goods. Okay. I didn't know that. I thought maybe you guys didn't either. So like like a truck driver. Yeah, he's a car man. Yeah, with a horse. Yes, but with a horse, not a truck. Not a car. I guess by a car they mean like behind the horse it pulls a car. Yes. Mm -hmm. So, yeah. I was confused because I was like, there are no cars. Get out of here. Anyway, a car man named Charles Allen Cross discovered what he initially believed to be a tarp lying on the ground in front of a gated stable entrance in Bucks Row, which is in Whitechapel. That's like not, I think this is not as a disgusting area of Whitechapel Mm -hmm. because it's a gated off stable. Right. As he walked to his place of employment in Broad Street, like he was on his way to walk to his work and he passed this scene on his way there. Charles Allen Cross drove a meat car for the local butcher. And you should remember his name. 
The location of his place of employment was approximately 150 yards from the London Hospital building. So we're in roughly the same area as Emma's attack. That would be like the first woman. Upon inspecting this object that Charles Allen Cross thought was a tarp, he discovered that it was actually the body of a woman. She lay on her back with her eyes open, her legs straight, her skirt raised above her knees, and her left hand touching the gate of the stable entrance. Charles Allen Cross touched the woman's face, which was still warm, and her hands, which had gone cold. By this time, another cart driver named Robert Paul had passed by and stopped to assess the situation with Charles Allen Cross. The men were totally stymied and confused. Was this a drunk person passed out on the ground or a dead body? It's hard to say. They couldn't decide. And so the two men pulled down the body's, the woman's skirt, not like, not like exposed her, they yeah. hid her. Like her skirt okay. was like up over her knees and they pulled it down to like give her some dignity, which I thought was like kind of a nice little gesture. Mm-hmm. Not, not one these women get a whole lot. And then they walked off to find a police officer, which police officers just walked around all the time there. So you didn't call the damn cops because you couldn't, you didn't go to right. a police station. If you just walked for a few minutes, you just ran into one. Right. And they were just like twirling their batons. Yeah. Mm-hmm. That's, yeah. that's precisely Whistling. what. <laughs> 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 oh, I sure hope that they were. <laughs> So upon encountering Police Constable Jonas Meisen at the corner of Hanbury Street and Baker's Row, Charles Allen Cross informed the constable of their discovery, adding, quote, She looks to me to be either dead or drunk, but for my part, I believe she's dead. Oh, my. Thank you, Sherlock Holmes. (laughs) And then the two men continued on their way to work, leaving this whole situation in the hands of Officer Meisen. They're like, you have it now. I got to (laughs) go. I've done my deed. (laughs) (laughs) She looks dead to me, but she could be drunk. (laughs) Good day. (laughs) That's how that went. (laughs) Just before Officer Meisen got to his destination, he encountered, now this scene I picture kind of comical, forgive me. He encountered another officer named John Neal, who was approaching the stable from the opposite direction while walking his patrol. So they're walking towards each other. I bet they're waving. Maybe. I mean, he's probably like, some shit's going down. But then Officer John Neal, who was coming from the other direction, had a a lantern. So he shone the light onto the direction in which they were approaching. And then a third officer coming perpendicular from them. Okay, good, good. Saw, by the name of John Thane, saw the two other officers looking at stuff, or their constables, I'm sorry. And he was like, well, what are you looking at? So then all three of them gather around this woman. They follow the beam of light that John Neal had shown on her, and they see that she's very clearly not sleeping. John Neal shouted, here is a woman with her throat cut. Run it once for Dr. Llewellyn. Because he's, he's very professional. So he shouts this to his compatriots, and then they start to look for any bloody trails or wheel marks in the road, which would indicate like where the person came from or mm-hmm. left, but there were none. Whoever this was, she had been killed right where she laid. Mm. Officer Thane went to get Dr. Llewellyn, who arrived on the scene at 4 a.m. Dr. Llewellyn is a fun character. He determined by the knife wounds across her throat that the woman was dead, which is a good indication of death. He is smart. Mm -hmm. And that because her extremities were still warm, she had only been dead for about 30 minutes. Mm -hmm. Now, this means that Charles Allen Cross had discovered her mere minutes after her death. Okay. Officer Neal loaded the woman onto a cart 
and brought her to the old Montague Street mortuary, and she arrived there at 5.20 a.m. And they brought her there so that Dr. Llewellyn could perform a proper post-mortem examination. But when they got there, they found that Dr. Llewellyn had just gone home. Well, he needs a nap. (laughs) This guy have a stroke or something? This is a murder. You don't just go home and have a sleep and then come back later. They called, they like went to get him. He's like, what? I went home. I mean, he might, he just might not have felt fresh enough. Hey, listen, I was so taken aback by this. I think part of him just wasn't concerned because it was a dead woman. Right. Who cares? I can deal with her later. She'll still be dead then. I mean, that's 100% true. Mm-hmm. So like, he yeah, just needed yeah. to nap. Of course. Let him get a well-rested sleep. He's a man after all. I know, so tired. So the injuries to her abdomen were discovered by a man named Inspector Spradling, who immediately again sent somebody for Dr. Llewellyn. They're like, she's really messed up. You have to come and look at her. You can't take a nap. Upon further examination of the body, Dr. Llewellyn discovered that both sides of her face had been bruised either by a fist or the pressure of a thumb before the wounds on her throat had been inflicted inflicted from left to right. Now, this is important. It's always left to right. One of these two wounds measured eight inches. That's very long for a wound across your throat. Mm -hmm. And the other four inches in length. They both reached all the way back to her vertebral column. So he cut her throat so deeply that it touched her spine. Wow. Yeah. Her vagina had been stabbed twice. So many stabbed vaginas in this story. And her abdomen had been mutilated with one deep, jagged wound two or three inches from the left side. Several cuts had also been made across her abdomen, causing her bowels to protrude through the wounds. So she had like intestines spilling out. And three or four similar cuts ran down the right side of her body. These cuts had also been inflicted with the same knife, estimated to be at least six to eight inches long, which is a long-ass knife. Yes. Officers and the doctor expected it to be... They thought it must be from someone who was like a cork cutter or a shoemaker because they used huge knives as tools of their trade. Okay, so we're looking for a leprechaun. Yes, precisely. Okay, I got it. Why didn't they know that? I don't know. They needed all those Irish immigrants there. That's true. It was for sure a leprechaun. They could have brought leprechauns with them. Maybe they did in the trunk and then they get out because you didn't put a clover on top. Yeah. Well, I think the theory is is that if you bring your, like, gods with you, Mm -hmm. they just start to appear. So they didn't need to, like, carry them over. They just, like, believe in it enough. They just sensed that this was their place to be. Yeah, because there was was believers there. So they— All right. They they cropped up. So you heard it from Leslie first. Jack the Ripper was a leprechaun. Yeah. I mean, don't rule it out. Okay, that's right. We can't rule anything out, truly. So each wound had been inflicted in a violent and downward-thrusting manner— Dr. Llewellyn further stated his belief that the murder murderer possessed some anatomical knowledge. At this point in time, at this particular murder, no organs were missing. That obviously happens later, but not with this one. Okay. Dr. Llewellyn estimated the injuries would have taken four to five minutes to complete and also expressed his surprise at the small amount of blood at the crime scene. He called it, quote, about enough to fill two large wine glasses or half a pint at the outside. I'm not 100% sure why we're measuring blood in cocktails, but mm. that's what he said. 
mean, they love to drink. But you're a scientist. You couldn't have said, like, cups? I, I don't know. He's just trying to help us understand, Holly. I, us, us dummy. It's a great visual. Dummy people, yeah. He believed this woman had been facing her attacker when he had held his hand across her mouth before cutting her throat. So the bruises would have been of a hand, like, choking her mm-hmm. up high and then holding her by her throat while he cut it. I don't want to know. Yeah, I know. It, that's really unsettling if you, like, you think about it that way because you're being held in place by your throat while they cut your throat. <gasps> mm-hmm. Um, and, her, and because she died by the slash to the throat, which happened first— her death would have been instantaneous, like I said, thankfully. And all of her abdominal injuries, which would have taken less than five minutes to perform, were made by the murderer after she was dead. Hmm. Dr. Llewellyn was able to determine this fact because the wounds inflicted to an individual's body after death do not bleed or result in less blood splattering and may not result in an extensive amount of blood loss from the body at all. Okay. So the reason this wasn't a very bloody crime scene is because the only place she was bleeding from actively was her throat. Right. The rest of the, like, evisceration happened after her heart started stopped pumping blood. And while we can't call this crime bloodless, obviously, there was a very small amount of spilled blood in relationship to the extent of her injuries. Like, I would expect this to be a bloodbath. Right. Not a couple wine glasses. Wasn't just, like, out of her throat? I guess not. We can ask. Maybe he collected it with pint glasses. Maybe he drank it. Maybe. I don't know. All right, so now we have a leprechaun and a vampire. Well, we can ask the corpse reviewer what happens when you cut somebody's throat. Yeah, because I've seen it. I mean. In movies. but and Well, I've seen it. I've actually seen it. Why? Um, at hockey games. You've seen someone's slight, throat cut? Yeah, with like uh, the blade. Holy the shit, that happened? That happened, In yeah. like a real life place that you were at? Yeah. That's horrifying. I do. Yeah, it was. Oh, my God. I guess, like, if you cut an artery a certain way, you can get arterial spray. But I guess, I don't yeah, know that you, you have, have to. to. Hit that. I yeah, don't know that you necessarily true. would have. I mean, buddy, he, he did cut all the way that's to her spine. That's what I mean, yeah. Well, maybe he cut enough of it that it was more of, like, a pour. Yeah. that. I mean, that's what I'm thinking, is okay. that it just kind of, like, spilled out rather than sprayed. But, again, this is questions for our real scientist. Okay. So we will um, we'll put a, a little pin in that, and we'll we'll talk about it at that time. So, an examination of the woman's possessions revealed that she carried no form of identification at the time of her death, and her only possessions were a white pocket handkerchief, a comb, and a piece of mirror. However, her petticoats were marked Lambeth Workhouse PR, indicating she may have lived at the workhouse on Princess Road, which had only opened in 1887. A workhouse resident named Marianne Monk positively identified the body as that of Marianne Nichols at 7.30 p.m. on August 31st. Earlier the same afternoon, Emily Holland also identified the deceased as Polly Nichols, as she was sometimes called. This identification was later corroborated by William Nichols, her, I think her husband, the following day. So who was Marianne Nichols? We know about her disgusting, horrible death, but I think we really should know a little bit about her life. She was born Marianne Walker on August 26, 1845, in Dean Street, Soho, London. She was the second of three children born to Edward Walker, a locksmith, and later a blacksmith, and Caroline, a laundress. Now, these are jobs that pay money. I mean, they wouldn't have been rich people, but they probably would have been able to pay their bills, for all accounts. Or at least lived in a place with a roof, I'm going to say. 
So Marianne had what appears to be a smooth and unremarkable childhood because there's really not much about it to read. At 18, she married a printer's machinist named William Nichols. So yes, that was her husband. Uh, A plaque, this is so sweet, still hangs in the church where Marianne and William were married, and it's dedicated to Marianne. um, And it says, quote, remember her life, not its end. Oh, isn't that nice? Yeah. I thought it was really nice. Between 1866 and 1879, the couple had five children together. Oh, and you can still visit that plaque. It's still there. Okay. In 1880, the pair separated due to disputed causes. This makes me really mad. William claimed that his wife was a prostitute, and his wife and her father claimed that William had an affair with the nurse who delivered their youngest child and was leaving Marianne for her. Hmm. William then backpedaled and said, well, yes, he was having an affair, but it only started after his wife left him so she could go be a prostitute and drink. Because we all want to leave our nice, stable home to go somewhere terrifying and unsecure. Right. That makes perfect sense. He was probably embarrassed that she was trying to work to get the money and that he couldn't fully support their five To be quite honest, I don't think she was at that time. I think it was a lie. Oh, Because he's the one that had an affair and he looked bad. The only way to cover up looking bad was to say, well, I had an affair because my wife left me because she's a prostitute. Mm. There is other reasons for this, and I'll get to it in a second. William maintained to authorities that his wife had deserted him and was practicing prostitution. And as I said, I think this is slander. Though she did practice sex work eventually out of desperation, there is absolutely no indication that she was doing so at this time, and his affair was proven to be true. Hmm. William moved out with four of their five children and the nurse. Like a dirtbag. Over the next six years, Marianne moved around a lot, um, and she had their oldest son, who I believe at some point was just old enough to go okay. fend for himself. She spent a lot of time in the Lambeth workhouse off and on, and uh, a workhouse is what it's called in a not-so-nice fashion a poorhouse. Mm-hmm. So if you don't have any money and you can't support yourself instead of living on the street, you can go to these workhouses mm-hmm. where you, you know, do whatever they need you to do there. They're like, kind of like factory jobs and stuff. And in return, you get to live there and you get like clothing mm-hmm. and that kind of stuff. So um, for a while... She worked there, and she cleaned in the workhouse. And that position is called a charwoman. I don't know why it's called that, but it just means she was basically a maid. Uh, and then she also worked for several families in the area, cleaning their homes part-time. Mm-hmm. Marianne had also been living off the small amount of alimony that her husband was ordered to pay her, which was just five shillings a week. But old dirtbag William did not like paying her, and so he eventually found uh, a workaround for this. In the spring of 1882, William, quote, got word, I think he made this shit up or one of his friends said it, that his ex-wife was working as a prostitute. Oh, happy day. This is all he ever wanted. It's proving his shitty story. But who was this word from and why on earth are we supposed to believe it when we know Marianne was living in a workhouse and working as a maid to make money? So she had a roof over her head and she was making an income. Why was she also working as a prostitute at that point in time? Well. William was a man, and he eventually found the right person to sell his story to. As soon as William heard about the, quote, prostitution, he stopped paying his alimony. And, of course, the parish authorities found him and demanded that he pay. But he told the authorities that his wife had left him to live with another man, there was no other man, and was was now earning money through prostitution. The parish authorities believed him, 
and he never paid another dime. They didn't even look into it. They just took his word for it. Yeah, that checks out. Yep. Meanwhile, without the money he was providing, Marianne finally was forced into prostitution by her circumstances. So I hate this horrible turn of events that he kind of wished this on her and put it on her for so long, and she finally just had to do it Mm -hmm. out of desperation. Which feels like some kind of horrible wish fulfillment on the part of her husband. From there on out, Marianne bounced around from the workhouse to several jobs with local families as a live-in maid. But at this point, her extreme circumstances had made her turn to drinking to cope. And the local families she worked for would all eventually take issue with this and let her go. Which drove her further and further into prostitution and alcoholism. It's a vicious cycle. You have to into the prostitution to pay for the booze, and you have the booze, which means Mm -hmm. you have to go back to prostitution. And for a while, she simply slept, quote, rough, which meant outdoors, in Trafalgar Square, entangled in a vicious cycle of selling herself for money and, again, spending it on alcohol. By 1888, Marianne was renting a bed nightly in lodging houses, which is better than sleeping on the street. Mm -hmm. On August 24th of 1888, she began living in a common lodging house at 56 Flower and Dean Street in Whitechapel. These addresses you will hear time and time again. Dean Street and other places are where all these lodging houses are and all the girls live. On the night of the murder, Marianne was seen walking along Whitechapel Road at approximately 11 p.m. She visited a local pub and returned home by 1.20 a.m., where she stayed for 50 minutes before the deputy lodging housekeeper, so that's the man in charge or lady in charge, reported seeing her in the kitchen and asking her for her nightly rent. When Marianne replied that she did not have the money, she was ordered to leave the premises. And these people are, like, tough. A lot of them, like, no money? You got to get out of here. I can turn over your bed in a second. Mm-hmm. Unconcerned, Marianne motioned to her new black velvet bonnet, replying, I'll soon get my DOS money. See what a jolly bonnet I've got now. <laughs> See, DOS. Yeah, there that you is go. What it is. <laughs> then she left in her hot new bonnet to find a man to make a little rent money. <laughs> I look good in this bonnet. Yep. We're going to be fine. Marianne was last seen alive by Emily Holland, walking alone down Osborne Street at approximately 2.30 a.m. Guys, you got to not walk down Osborne Street late at night. Mm -mm. Emily later told the coroner that Marianne was noticeably drunk and that Emily had tried to get her to go home, but Marianne refused, stating, I have my lodging money three times over today, and I have spent it. So I guess she did make plenty of money, but she spent it on booze. Yeah. So she had no place to stay. Emily noted that Marianne seemed unconcerned, and not being able to do anything else for her, Emily went on her way. Just an hour later, Marianne would be dead. How bad would you feel if you were Emily? Yeah. You, like, tried to get her to go home, Mm -hmm. but then, like, she couldn't do anything else. She can't drag this drunk woman back home unwillingly. Right. On September 1st, back to Win Edward Baxter, our eccentric coroner, was back at it with an inquest. First, Marianne's father testified that she had separated from her husband years ago, had no enemies, and that he had not seen her since Easter. Because at one point she was living with her father and they had a fight too. She just lost, we'll see it time and time again, these women just lose so much. Right. Nonstop. The police then retold their story of her discovery, adding that the streets had been busy and it would have been easy for an attacker to just disappear into the crowd afterwards. Mm Mm-hmm. Then came Dr. Llewellyn, who gave us a little more detail now that he was less cranky about the body. He said, quote, Five of the teeth were missing, and there was a slight laceration of the tongue. There was a bruise running along the lower part of the jaw on the right side of the face. 
that might have been caused by a blow from a fist or pressure from a thumb. There was a circular bruise on the left side of the face, which also might have been inflicted inflicted by the pressure of fingers. So that adds up to a full-on chokehold. Mm -hmm. On the left side of the neck, about one inch below the jaw, there was an incision about four inches in length and ran from a point immediately below the ear. On the same side, but an inch below and commencing about one inch in front of it, there was a circular incision, which terminated at a point about three inches below the right jaw. That incision completely severed all the tissues down to the vertebrae. The large vessels of the neck on both sides were severed. The incision was about eight inches in length. The cuts must have been caused by a long-bladed knife, moderately sharp and used with great violence. No blood was found on the breast, either of the body or the clothes. There were no injuries about the body until just about the lower part of the abdomen. Two or three inches from the left side was a wound running a jagged, running in a jagged manner. The wound was a very deep one and the tissues were cut through. There were several incisions running across the abdomen. There were three or four similar cuts running downwards on the right side, all of which had been caused by a knife, which had been used violently and downwards. The injuries were from left to right and might have been done by a left-handed person. All the injuries have been caused by the same instrument. The coroner, however, did wonder why the man who found Marianne had not noticed her severe neck lacerations, but he simply said it had been dark. Acquaintances testified that Marianne was a quiet woman who kept to herself, and none of them knew how she made her living. So she wasn't like, out there with the whole prostitute thing. I think especially because it had been such a matter of contention with her husband. It was something she did in the shadows to pay her bills. Hmm. But before the inquest could sew itself up, another murder occurred. Just before 5 a.m. on September 8th, John Richardson went into his backyard at 29 Hanbury Street to trim a loose piece of leather from his boot. What an odd early morning task to do. Okay. Hmm. And all was still. At 5.15 a.m., the resident of 27 Hanbury Street, so their direct neighbor, entered his yard to use the bathroom, they say. I'm just going to hope they have an outhouse, but they probably were just going outside. (laughs) When he heard a woman say, no, no, before hearing something fall against the fence. But again, terrible things happen all the time here, so he thought nothing of it. At 6 a.m., an elderly resident named John Davis, who also lived in number 29, so the same resident of the guy that was fixing his boot, entered the backyard and discovered the body of Annie Chapman laying on the ground near the doorway to the backyard with her head six inches from the back steps. Mr. Davis then notified James Gree, James Kent, and Henry Holland that there was a fucking dead girl in their backyard. And then all three of them ran screaming down the street to find a police officer. So he was like, all the boys, come here. Dead girl, let's go. Oh, my. I mean, it took one old guy to get that. Yeah. Get that really going. Fortunately, as per usual, there was an officer right around the corner of Hanbury Street. Officer, um, or constable, sorry, Joseph Chandler. and And the men informed him that another woman had been murdered. This is all exclamation points. They were very excited. Officer Chandler, I keep using officer because that's the American term, but it is constable. Constable Chandler called for backup, and a police surgeon, Dr. George Bagster Phillips, 
who immediately established a link between this murder and the murder of Marianne Nichols. This woman also had two deep slash wounds left to right in her throat and mutilation to her abdomen. The size of the blade used was determined to be the same. Dr. Phillips also observed six areas of blood spatter on the wall of the house between the steps and the makeshift fence dividing the two properties. Two pills, which Chapman had been prescribed for a lung condition, a section of torn envelope, a small piece of frayed coarse muslin, and a comb were recovered close to her body. A leather apron, partially Ooh. submerged in a dish of water located close to a tap, was also discovered close to her body. Well, now we're getting somewhere. Hmm. At least we know why they called him Leather Apron. Right, right. But who was Annie Chapman? Did she know Marianne Nichols? Maybe they had a mutual asshole murdery acquaintance. Who knows? Annie Nichols was a military brat. She was born Eliza Ann Smith in Paddington. Oh, Isn't that cute? So cute. I know. On September 25th, 1840, she was the first of five children born to George, George Smith and Ruth Chapman. George Smith was a soldier, having enlisted in the 2nd Regiment of Lifeguards. Oh. If you're a lifeguard. <laughs> he just takes care of the oceans or pools. <laughs> Local pools. He's just guarding some life, man. Yeah. All the life. Yeah. He's got to guard it. <laughs> so he, is to, he uh, enlisted in December of 1834. Reportedly, the location of Annie's earliest years revolved around her father's military service. Then he served between London and Windsor. Because her father's career, the family traveled a lot. And according to her brother, Fountain. What? Her brother's name is Fountain. It's like river today. <laughs> I can't make this shit up. I just can't. Fountain. And it's so casually mentioned everywhere. They're like, her brother, Fountain. I'm like, we're not going to talk about that fact that that's his name? What's her name again? Annie. Annie <laughs> Fountain. This, my name is Annie. This is my brother, Fountain. <laughs> what? Wow. I mean, that's going to make... A splash at parties. I'm going to write that down. Save that for later. Yeah. Baby names? Baby names. Fountain. Fountain. Mm-hmm. Add it to the list, people. <laughs> uh, but according to Fountain, Annie developed a taste for alcohol at a very early age. She's a military brat. She probably was unsupervised a lot. In fact, her brothers and sisters, when she was young, made her sign a contract where she would promise to stop drinking. It's such a kid thing. They're like, we wrote it up. It says you can't drink anymore and you have to sign it. Then she signed it. But it didn't stop her. Mm. So by 1861, Annie was living in London and working as a domestic servant, even though her family had moved on to a different location. In 1863, her father, accompanied by his employer to a horse racing event, um, well, he accompanied his employer, sorry. He was lodging with his employer that evening at the Elephant and Castle in Wrexham. I'd like to stay somewhere called the Elephant and Castle. And that night, George Smith, Annie's father, committed suicide by cutting his own throat. Oh. All personal accounts of Annie say she was smart, industrious, clever, sociable, and very fond of rum. Friends would call her worse for the drink, which I, that's a term that I love now. Like if someone's like a bad drunk, they would call them worse for the drink. Yeah. Okay. I like that. I hope I don't have to use it, but if I do, like, it's a good one to use. <laughs> On May 1st of 1869, Annie married her maternal relative, John James Chapman. I'm not sure how they were related. We're going to hope it was like a third cousin situation because the pair had three children. Mm. Emily Ruth, Annie Georgina, and John Alfred. John was born physically disabled, and while Annie and her husband tried to find him treatment at a hospital, apparently there was just none that anyone could offer, and therefore he was condemned to spend his entire life in an institution. Oh. Yeah. This devastated Annie and caused her to sink further into her alcoholism. 
For two years, uh, and then two years later, I'm sorry, on her brother's second birthday, Emily Ruth, Annie's eldest child, died of meningitis. Both Annie and her husband took to drinking themselves blind every day after that. But like, I might too if my child was committed to an institution and then my oldest child died. Right. Uh, And they accrued several arrests together for uh, public drunkenness. But finally, after more than most couples can handle, Annie and her third cousin or whatever he was mutually separated in 1884. John, however, unlike our previous husband, paid 10 shillings a week in alimony and kept their surviving daughter with him. The reason for their separation was stated on the paperwork to be, quote, Annie's drunkenness, but her husband always gave her her money on time. So he was, like, good about it. Right. He's like, we have to separate. We've been through way too much. You're going through it. I'm going to take our child, and I'm going to make sure that you're provided for. Sadly, though, that wouldn't last. On Christmas Day, 1886, John died of cirrhosis of the liver. Oh. Yeah. There's a fun rumor that Annie Georgina, their surviving daughter, uh, daughter joined the circus, but really she just went to live with her grandmother. Oh, bummer. I know. I was like, circus? Wow. Are we going to have some, like, offshoot story that, like, she's a famous circus person? No. Really disappointed we didn't get that. Annie had been living with a sieve maker in London. It's like when you strain things like a colander type situation. But when her, so they were called, they called her Annie Sieve for a while. Oh. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but when money stopped coming in, um, she discovered that her husband had died. So that's how she discovered he died was that just she stopped getting money. The sieve maker then left her because he was with Annie for the money that came in every week. And Annie just kind of lost her will to live at that point. I guess there's not a lot of money in sieve making. Well, she wasn't even doing it. That guy was doing it. That's what I mean. And that guy left her. That's what I mean. There wasn't a lot of money in it. (laughs) Not a lot of demand for a sieve. Yeah. (laughs) After this, Annie sunk into prostitution and selling flowers and bits of crocheting. Oh. Especially anti-macassars. Anti-macassars. Which I learned about today. They are the doilies that our grandmothers put on the arms of chairs. Yes. Okay. There's a word for them. It's nice. A-N-T-I-M-A-C-A-S-S-A-R-S. I bet you Margie knows that. I bet she does. Yeah. Uh, she would also sleep with men for a room to sleep in at night because a lot of times at that time prostitutes, that's a kind of a barter. Instead of getting money, they would be able to sleep with them in their room and so they wouldn't have to sleep outside. And she occasionally got in fights with other girls in the evenings. Just before her death, Annie had a fight that resulted in her having a black eye and a bruised breast. After that night, she appeared ill and pale when anyone saw her. It was revealed at her autopsy that her lungs and brain membranes were in advanced states of disease, which would have, had she not been killed, killed her anyway within two months. Oh, wow. Okay. Yeah, she was sick. On September 8th, the day of her murder, according to both the lodging house deputy, Timothy Donovan, and the watchman, John Evans, shortly after midnight, Annie didn't have the money for her nightly lodging. This is the same in lots of these stories. Mm. So she drank a pint of beer in the kitchen with a fellow lodger named Frederick Stevens at approximately 12.10 a.m. before informing another lodger that she had visited, um, that she had earlier, she had visited her sister in Vauxhall, and that her family had given her 5D. Now, D is less than a penny. It's like 246th of a shilling or some. It's a very tiny margin of money. Okay. That doesn't exist today anywhere. Right. Stevens then observed Annie take a box of pills from her pocket. The box broke, and all her pills fell on the floor, and she had to pick them up, and then she put them in just a section of an envelope she had taken from the mantelpiece 
before leaving the property. Oh, man. That image is so sad to me. Her yeah. medicine spilled all over, and she just had to grab a little piece of something and wrap it all up. Oh. Ugh. At approximately 1.35 a.m., Annie returned to the lodging house with a baked potato, which she ate again before leaving the premises with a likely intention of earning the money to pay for her bed by selling herself. And she stated, I won't be long, Brummy. See that Tim keeps the bed for me. Evans last saw Chapman walking, or Annie, sorry, walking in the direction of the Spatial Fields Market. I don't know why, but that lone baked potato makes me unspeakably sad. Yeah. Yeah, She just walked back there with her little potato and ate it, and then was like, I'm going to get some money. I'll be back. Oh. A Mrs. Elizabeth Long testified at the subsequent inquest into Annie's murder that she had observed Annie talking with a man at 5.30 a.m. The two had stood just beyond the backyard of 29 Hanbury Feet in Spatial Fields. Mrs. Long described this man as being over 40 years old, slightly taller than Annie, with dark hair and a foreign, quote, shabby genteel appearance. He was wearing a brown, low-crowned felt hat and possibly a dark coat. According to Mrs. Long, the man had asked Annie the question, will you? To which Annie replied, yes which is ominous. Will you what? Hmm. Mrs. Long was likely to have been the last person to see Annie alive, and she had been in the company of her murderer. And so, while the inquest for Marianne Nichols was happening, another inquest had begun for Annie Chapman, and our pal Win Edwin Baxter is now performing double duty. Oh, no. He's probably so tired. Yeah, but, like, he looks like he probably does a lot of cocaine to keep up with the demands. Okay. Dr. Phillips described the body... Like this, quote, the left arm was placed across the left breast, the legs were drawn up, the feet were resting on the ground, and the knees turned outward. That's like a spread eagle position, which is gross, but if you're not picturing it with that, that's what it is. The face was swollen and turned on the right side. The tongue protruded between the front teeth, but not beyond the lips. The tongue was evidently much swollen. The front teeth were perfect as far as the first molar, top and bottom, and very fine teeth they were, which would have been something that stood out in that place and time. For sure. The body was terribly mutilated. The stiffness of the limbs was not marked, but was evidently commencing. He noticed that the throat was dissevered deeply and that the incision through the skin, the incisions through the skin were jagged and reached right around the neck. On the wooden Palling between the yard in question and the neck, so it's like a makeshift fence of just like pieces of wood. There were smears of blood corresponding with where the head of the deceased laid. These were about 14 inches from the ground, and immediately above that part was the blood where the neck had laid. So you could see like where her head dragged and like the blood was from her neck. Mm. The instrument used at the throat and abdomen was the same. It must have been a very sharp knife with a thin, narrow blade and must have been at least six to eight inches in length, probably longer. He should say that the injuries could not have been inflicted by a bayonet or a sword bayonet. They could have been done by such an instrument as a medical man used for post-mortem purposes, which he would know about. But the ordinary surgical cases might not contain such an instrument. Those used by the slaughtermen, well ground down, might have caused them. He thought the knives used by those in the leather trade would not be long enough in the blade. So I feel like Dr. Phillips is like a little more on it than Dr. Llewellyn. He didn't go home for a nap. He was there right away. He's really like speculating. (laughs) There were indications of anatomical knowledge, 
he should say that the deceased had been dead at least two hours and probably more when he first saw her, but it was right to mention that it was a fairly cool morning and that the body would be more apt to cool rapidly from having lost a great quantity of blood, which we talked about in Field Dressing a Deer. You take the insides out so it cools down and it doesn't rot. There was no evidence of a struggle, struggle having taken place. He was positive that the deceased had entered this yard alive. And because there was no struggle, one would assume willingly also. A handkerchief was around the throat of the deceased when he saw it early in the morning. He should say that it was not tied on after the throat was cut. Annie's throat had been cut so deeply that there were striations in the bones of her vertebral column. So he went all the way through and like the knife cut part of her bone. Like it made like, made like a little striation in it. She had been disemboweled with a section of the flesh from her stomach being placed upon her left shoulder and another section of skin and flesh plus her small intestines being removed and placed above her right shoulder. The morgue examination re revealed that part of her uterus and bladder were missing. Chapman's protruding tongue and swollen face led Dr. Phillips to believe that she may have been asphyxiated with the handkerchief around her neck before her throat was cut. So it's the same thing. He would have like grabbed her by the neckerchief, which choked her, and then used that as leverage to slit her throat. I know. And that the murderer had held onto her chin as he performed this act. Ugh. There was no blood trail yet again leading into the yard, and he was certain that she was killed where she was found. Dr. Phillips spoke of her lung disease and of the fact that she was sober at the time of her death, which is sad. Dr. Phillips thought that Annie's murderer must have had some anatomical knowledge and that he removed her reproductive organs in a single stroke, but this was widely dismissed by experts. In fact, the coroner suggested that her missing organs could have been removed later by mortuary staff members or that she could have been killed with the intention of taking them to sell to medical schools, a practice which was not unheard of at that time. You can go back to our episode on Burke and Hare if you want to learn all about that. Cool. Yeah. In the end, both Annie Chapman and Marianne Nichols received the verdict of willful murder against a person or persons unknown. Now, I know I said that we're not talking about suspects this week, but this is the point in the story where we start calling the killer Leather Apron. And it just so happened that there was a Jewish man from the district that went by the nickname Leather Apron. And this spawned a media circus featuring crude anti-Semitic drawings of Leather Apron committing heinous crimes and launched a wave of anti-Semitic ads, acts in Whitechapel. In reality, Leather Apron was, was a pretty awful dude, but that had nothing to do with the fact that he was Jewish. He was just a shitty guy. John Pizer, a 38-year-old Polish Jewish man who made footwear from leather, so he's a shoemaker, like okay. we said before, was known by the name Leather Apron. Via knife point, Pizer frequently intimidated local prostitutes. So he, like, held them up at knife point. Mm. He appeared before the Thames Magistrates Court on August 4th, 1888, and was charged with incident assault. Pizer is also believed to have stabbed a man in the hand in 1887. So again, not a great guy. Despite there being no direct evidence against Pizer, he was arrested by Sergeant William Fick on September 10th. Pizer was released from custody on September 11th after police were able to verify his alibis on the nights of the murders of both Annie and Marianne. Pizer also successfully obtained monetary compensation from at least one newspaper at the time that had published these sort of demeaning articles naming him as the prime suspect in the Whitechapel murders. So while this particular leather apron was cleared, they did continue to use the name 
leather apron because they found a leather apron. Right. But um, And this would also go on to make people extremely suspicious, and we'll see this in the next three killings of the Jewish population in town. They were very focused on this being like like a Jewish man. A lot of people thought that because they were super anti-Semitic and terrible. Right. But um, little did they know it was a leprechaun. And all this time, it was just like a little Irish leprechaun hanging out. Weird, right? So weird. Um, And I'm going to stop part one there. Oh, wow. Yeah. I mean, we have an hour and a half just about. Right. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. So in part two, we'll go on to talk about Elizabeth Stride, Catherine Eddowes, and Mary Jane Kelly. Then the other subsequent, there's a couple more that are not canonical five that are like, Maybe we can lump these in with them, like the two in the okay. beginning. Uh, we'll do that next week, and we'll also talk about the From Hell letters and the evidence that they gathered. Okay, a little bit of Johnny Depp. Yeah, man. And uh, we can we can have dramatic readings of the letters in the postcard. It'll be Ooh. really fun. Okay. So work cool. on a spooky voice. <laughs> yeah, so I guess um, I do want to toast this week because we have a patron we need to toast. We do. Um do we want to toast anybody in this segment? I think we should toast Marianne Nichols and Annie Chapman. For sure. Because, okay. like, goddamn, their life was sad. Okay. And the, and the, sorry, and the two in the beginning. We don't know if they were actually killed by the same person, but they did have a pretty hard time, and that was pretty awful. That would be Emma Elizabeth Smith and Martha Tobman. So cheers to all of those ladies who had such a horrible end. And to our patron, Corey S., Yes, Corey, and all of your chess mastering skills. Corey S. Yes, chess. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Cheers to um, Corey. She's always fun in the Facebook group. We like chatting with her. Yeah, for sure. Uh, yeah. And um, into Fountain. <laughs> a boy named Fountain, a book um, I would read. I, <laughs> so I looked this up. Okay. This is what I was doing. Oh, good. You, you were like looking at me and you were like, what's she doing over there? Um, so fountain means a spring. Okay. And it was very popular in 1888. There were a lot of fountains yeah, about. It's, a, it's an English name. Okay. Yeah. And uh and then it teetered off like because it's a weird ass yeah, name. Within the next couple of decades, but it, it went up and down in like little spikes. But there is it's I think there was like twenty nine thousand people with the name fountain. I've never heard of a single fountain. And there's fountain. some recently with the name Fountain. Have you ever heard of someone named Fountain before? No. But I, it doesn't seem to be anybody in the U.S. It seems like maybe that's why. Maybe it's just an English thing. Okay. If you know someone named Fountain, please let us know. Yeah. If your name is Fountain, I'm really sorry I gave it shit. Yeah. You're amazing. And then there was a name that was Fontaine. Oh. That means Fountain. <laughs> Like Fontaine, like in like Les Mis? F-O-N-T-A-N-E. Oh, I think that's different. Yeah. Still. So, cheers to Fountain. Yeah, Fountain. <laughs> so dull. I know. Oh! There we go. Yes! Uh, I'm not going to give it uh, We Would Be Dead this week because there's like We're not done. so many more deads to go. Yeah. <laughs> so make sure you guys... Catch us next week for the rest of the uh, Whitechapel murders. And then the week after that is going to be super exciting because we get to take everything that we've learned in these two weeks and try and figure out who this guy was. Well, I already know. I feel like I know too. And our guest feels like he knows. Oh, my. So it's going to be like a rousing conversation. Okay. (laughs) 
I better come to the table with my theory. <laughs> I think you need to really flesh out your leprechaun theory. I do. <laughs> I look forward to this. Hope somewhere there's a picture of a leprechaun in like a top hat and a dark cape like Jack the Ripper. If not, I'm going to make that happen. I need you to get on Photoshop and make leprechaun like the Ripper Zach happen. Snyder's leprechaun. Oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> All right, you guys. Well, we'll see you next week for more Ripper murders. Bye. Thank you for listening to the We Would Be Dead podcast. Hit subscribe now to never miss an episode. Rate and review our show on iTunes. Follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Would Be Dead Pod. And join our Facebook group to discuss the podcast and more. She looks dead to me, but she could be drunk. Good day.